to have on Secrets of Statecraft a real-life spy. Sir Richard Dearlove was the Chief of Operations of MI6 from 1996 to 1999 and was Chief of the Service from 1999 to 2004. Sir Richard, you joined SIS, which we might call MI6 for the purposes of this interview because it's uh, better known by that uh, name, in 1966 at a time when there was a dark shadow over the service um, because, of course, it was recovering from the penetration, the Soviet penetration of uh, Kim Philby and uh, George Blake and others. What was it like? What was the, uh, the sense of the service like at that time? Well, when I joined, I think um, one wasn't as a new recruit particularly, immediately particularly conscious of what the, was going on in terms of the services penetration. Um, I mean, I think that what one has to recall is that there was quite a lot of need to know, there was quite a lot of, as it were, forbidden areas for discussion. So I guess I was part of a group which was taken in, I suppose the phrase one would use now, that we were, you know, we were entirely clean, we were unblown, we were uncontaminated. And it was really uh, quite a long time uh, after my training that one began to have a better understanding of these dimensions. I mean, that may sound terribly naive, but in fact, uh, you know, part of joining as a very young officer was, you know, to keep us away from that contamination. Mm. And there were sort of two different camps, weren't there, in that um, one set of people... Um, believed that it was an existential thing that uh, SIS was going to take decades to get over. Uh, one might see James Jesus Angleton, um, the CIA uh, operative, who who very much thought that SIS was profoundly compromised and would be for a very long time. What you what you've called the nihilists, and then there was another set of people, wasn't there, um, who one might group around Harold Shergold. Uh, a uh, SIS um, senior figure who who thought the opposite. He very much thought that those um, penetrative agents, Philby and Blake and so on, and the time was ripe for really rebuilding the uh, the service. Is that a fair um, fair appreciation of it? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair, you know it's been written about pretty extensively, and there's a there's a very good book. Uh, which is a great title, Wilderness of Mirrors, um, you know, about that whole period. And I, I mean, in fact, the high priests of counterintelligence, and that's the way I would describe Angleton, had had a huge amount of influence. And because of what one or two um, Soviet defectors had said in that period, they they had massively exaggerated. And I mean, the Angleton sort of theory was that every Western uh, service was thoroughly penetrated and that there wasn't really much point in believing that, you know, we could even the equation and, and, and penetrate the Soviet services, the Warsaw, uh, Warsaw Pact services to the same degree. So, I mean, there was a very, very nihilistic group um, which was represented in most of the major Western services, particularly in the US and to an extent in the UK. But on the other hand, there were those who took a, a radically different view and um, were already uh, actually working successfully and positively in making uh, a, a sort of counterbalancing penetrations of, of, of the Soviet, of the KGB in particular, and then other Warsaw Pact services. And what did you find when you uh, were a, a, a young operative in, in Prague in 1973? What was the, well, uh, I had, what was the sense then? I mean, I, I, I had, what had happened really was that um, after I was trained, I, I actually went into uh, work in counterintelligence and specifically on um, Warsaw Pact services and, and, and particularly the Czech services. And then I was um, posted to Prague specifically to uh, run a really 
important case, which has now been quite extensively documented because the Czechoslovak uh, STP archives have been released. And uh, certainly in Prague, the case has been extensively written about. Um, I think there's a TV program being made about it. Uh, and uh, what had happened, uh, I mean, before my time, I mean, I mean, it, it, he, he had offered his services to the West. And one of the key um, Czechoslovak officers in the STB, uh, who was actually responsible for operations against the UK, against uh, the British intelligence and security community, um, had been uh, uh, recruited and, and, and was run over a period of time. I mean, there are certain bits of that case which are not in the public domain, which I don't want to put into the public domain. But, uh, I mean, the, the, the check end of the case uh, and their investigations. And, I mean, what we know now, and um, I've been shown the archive files um, in the STB archives in Prague, is that the, the subsequent investigation turned that, that whole service completely upside down. It went on for 12 years, the investigation, because they, they hadn't a clue um, how long he'd worked for the West um, and how much he'd actually seen. Um, it was an important case, uh, and I think now it's getting its just attention historically. With regard to the history of, uh, of SIS, uh, you've said that there are huge holes in the history, in particular the 1920s, 1945, and the early 1960s. Uh, why is that? What's the, what's the reason for these, these sort of gaps in the history? Well, there were various hiatuses historically, I think, when... Um, Weeding wasn't done with any care and attention when there were sort of physical moves of the archives, more space was required. Um, I think there are a variety of different reasons. There were certainly groups of officers who believed that none of this material should ever historically be available and therefore uh, destroyed lots of documentation. And of course, you know, there are one or two uh, classic cases, like, for example, um, at the beginning of World War II, some of the Polish intelligence archives were brought to the UK. And I mean, this has been a bone of contention between the UK and Poland. In fact, at the end, at some point during the war, after the end of the war, they were completely destroyed, and the Poles absolutely cannot accept. Uh, that their own archives were weeded and destroyed and haven't survived. Well, it, it's not very easy for any historian to accept it. I mean, that's a terrible thing to have done, isn't it, Richard? <laughs> well, of course it is. And I mean, I'm not making any... I'm just saying it's a fact it happened. Um, you know, lots of weird things happened around World War II, particularly with intelligence archives. For example, I'll give you another example. The French Security Service archives were captured by the Nazis um in Paris and were taken back to Berlin and then were captured by the Russians in Berlin and taken to Moscow. And uh, we knew well that uh, the KGB actually had the DSD archives and, and they used them and they worked on them right up, uh, you know, in, in, into the 1960s. And uh, it was a really terrible problem for the French because their complete archive, and it's still there somewhere in Moscow, but they Fascinating. Um, tell us about the uh, what's called the Lord Chancellor's Blanket, uh, the, the, the process of neither confirming nor denying anything when it comes to uh, to SIS matters. Is that uh, is that something that you uh, support that you think is useful? Do you think it's got a future? Yeah, I mean, uh, what uh, effectively it is that um, the archives of SIS are not released um, in line with other government departments. So um, they're excluded. Uh, I mean, for example, security service documents are selectively released under the 30-year rule. Although, you know, if you're familiar with um, security service archives, MI5 archives, you'll see, you know, the stuff which is blacked out. But generally speaking, they're quite extensive releases. This doesn't apply to the archives of MI6 or SIS. And I, I guess the reason it doesn't is that those who've worked as 
espionage agents or agents of the United Kingdom are given um, uh, a guarantee, a lifelong guarantee of anonymity beyond the grave, so that you know their families and their relatives' families um, are not, as it were, uh, ever compromised by what might have been done by preceding generations. And actually, um, I think, I mean, I was originally a historian briefly, uh, and then became an intelligence officer. I can see why this is deeply frustrating for historians. <laughs> but on the other hand, I think it's entirely understandable. And, uh, and, and uh, I mean, the fact that neither confirm nor deny has then remained the primary um, policy in regard to disclosure, the official policy of MI6, I think has been um, successful. I mean, I'm talking about things now, you know, to you, which are historically on the record and disclosed for a variety of reasons. I'm confirming materials already in the public domain. Um, uh, however, you know, I, I, I would not be disclosing to you now material that isn't <laughs> no absolutely but there was a moment wasn't there until fairly recently i think it was in the 1990s when the whole existence of mi6 was something that no government minister would confirm or deny uh, or indeed wasn't or, or they denied it in fact didn't they that it even existed it's not actually called it, it's called a vowel um i mean the technical word is a vowel and a non-avowal and and what what in fact happened in the past was that it was a nice convenience for the ministers of her majesty's government to be able in response to a parliamentary question to say it is not the custom of her majesty's government to comment on such matters um in that the, the existence of mi6 had never been legally formally acknowledged. Of course, everybody knew the service existed. It was founded in 1909, for God's sake. Um, but it was only after the Intelligence Services Act of, I think, I, I'm trying to remember the date. I don't know if seen the moment. It was 1994, I think. Yeah, um, I think so too. Where the, the existence of the service was formally acknowledged um, uh, by statute. And therefore, it was formally avowed, and, and, and the consequences of that now are there's you know an oversight committee uh, in Parliament, and the name of the chief when he's appointed is announced publicly in Parliament. But I mean, those arrangements are relatively new. Um, I mean, when I joined in '66, it was a rather wonderful fiction that you know you belonged to an organisation that didn't exist, and. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that that had a certain convenience and, uh, you know, it worked well. But I think in a modern democracy, um, there was pressure both from within the service and to an extent without that the service should be put on the statutory basis. But of course, it's made that it's made life much more complex legally to have the service on a statutory basis. And um, I, I mean, uh, for example, I won't go into detail. There are many, many more lawyers in MI6 than there used to be. <laughs> oh, that's always a bad sign. Um, <laughs> you mentioned in 1902 the foundation of uh, of the service in, in 19 sorry 1909. Uh, in, yeah. in in 1909, um, of course, uh, that was in part as a response to the spy stories that uh, William Lequex and others had written. Um, and uh, and I'd like to ask about this aspect of the sort of fictional um, figure, this fictional spy uh, for British intelligence, because uh, he's quite an important figure, isn't he? Uh, James Bond being the, uh, the the classic and best known, I think. Um, what effect does the fictional side of uh, spying have, if any, on the um, on the genuine side? I think. It has quite a significant effect in, in, in some ways. I think to, the essence of it is it projects the myth of British intelligence as opposed to the actuality. But the myth uh, is important in terms of one's global reputation in, let's say, attracting would-be spies or agents. I mean, the irony about the founding of the service is that Lequex, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce his name, but I think it is 
correctly pronounced Leclerc's, um, wrote a, a series of pretty ghastly thrillers which were based around the concept of you know German invasion of the United Kingdom or of, of England from East Anglia, and you know basically brushed up a lot of um, excitement and activity about German spies. Uh, and I think there was even um, publicity for one of his books, you know, when people walked around Regent Street in, in German army uniforms, handing out flyers for the book. I mean, it really was taken to quite a strong degree. And there was a lot of alarm um, in Parliament raised by, you know, this, this sort of scaremongering, which was fictional, but influential. And actually, it's because of that scaremongering, if you look at the historical record, that uh, MI6 was started in 1909. Um, I mean, it, it had been a section of specifically naval intelligence before that, and then it was formalized into a separate organization. So its origins are tied up, strangely, with a certain amount of fiction. And since then, you know, you have a whole succession of um, spy books, uh, Le Carre um, probably being the most prominent recently, certainly the Bond franchise. And all of these um, elements have contributed towards the myth um, of the service and its reputation. I, I mean, you haven't, there's no more powerful global brand which keeps being regenerated or rejuvenated than, than Bond. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary the way that it's captured the public imagination. And although it, in fact, has virtually nothing to do with the reality of the service's existence, it's still um, a, a, probably an important influence um, in one way or another. You've said of Le Carre, um, uh, John Cornwall as he was, that um, uh, he was the literary expression, or at least his books, were the literary expression of the counterintelligence nihilists, uh, the people who uh, who essentially argued um, that there was no moral difference between the KGB and uh, and um, MI6, that uh, we were fatally compromised, um, and generally he put a very negative from a from a tremendously short period of time in MI6 himself. He of course made a, a lifetime's uh, career out of writing about it, but at the same time um, you have stated, and you got into a bit of a spat with him, I remember, um, a couple of years ago at the Clifton Literary Festival and afterwards, over his um, his portrayal of, uh, of MI6. I wonder if you'd like to, um, to sort of relive that a bit and, and tell us what you meant by this concept of the literary expression of the counterintelligent nihilists. I'm not going to criticise Le Carre as a writer, I think some of his books are really very good and very gripping. And, you know, he is an outstanding novelist of his time. Um, the vehicle, you know, for his reputation is entirely um, MI6. And he writes about it in this way, which, because of the success of his novels, has sort of been quite authoritative. But, of course, it, you have to remember it's fiction. And... He was in the service, of course, briefly, and then in the security service. And he claims, or he claimed before his death, that you know, he was completely disillusioned because he, I think he, he said he was blown by, by Philby and that you know, prevented him uh, having um, a constructive and exciting career. Um, I mean, I find that hard to accept because you know, lots of officers... Um, get blown early on in their careers for one reason or another, but it's still quite possible to have, um, you know, a successful career. I mean, I was identified as a British intelligence officer as a result of the case that you mentioned um, in Czechoslovakia. It didn't stop me having a successful career after that. So I, I don't accept uh, Le Carre's analysis of the way his career didn't take off. But on the other hand, you know, if you read his, his books about the circus, um, they are all about betrayal. They are all about um, penetration by um, Russian stroke East Germans. Um, they are about, you know, the failure 
of the West. I, I mean, he, and he, he, he's really taking that nihilist theme and, 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 and juxtaposing, you know, Carla and Smiley, um, fighting, you know, this battle, which the West, um, I would say probably in his books is, is usually coming off worst. And, you know, he paints a very, very corrosive picture. Um, I mean, my career largely was based on the concept of trust, not betrayal. Of course, if you're working in a trust environment, when a betrayal happens, it's that much more punishing. And, uh, you know, the, the, the feelings of, of, of personal letdown can be extreme. But, um, I mean, the Carrier's books are a, a, a make-bleed world, you know, where everybody is a villain and not to be trusted except, you know, one or two. I mean, Smiley, well, even Smiley doesn't come out of particularly well. Um, so if, if you're not looking at these books purely as literary works, but you're looking at them from a professional angle, uh, I'm very critical indeed. And, and, and you well know that when I said this about, uh, Le Carre or, or, or John Cornwall as, as he was in reality. I mean, he took a kid and um, was very cross with me. But I mean, we, we had previously met, but we hadn't discussed this in quite that detail. And it took me quite a long time to reach this conclusion about his books. Um, you know, one's views form over time. But um, I certainly wrote the, a piece about this where, where either, which was put in the Telegraph alongside the obituary. I think I don't know whether you wrote this obituary, but somebody. Uh, no, no, I didn't. I actually wrote an article a bit like yours, pointing out that uh, <laughs> he uh, he he was um, he was a corrosive in influence, as you say. Um, yeah. The um, you've been critical of the biography of um, of MI6 by Kevin Jeffries, um, but you've been positive about the novels of Alan Judd. Um, I, I agree with you here again. I think Alan's um, uh, novels are great, but then I was never a spy, so I don't know how accurate he was. Whereas he and you were. What do you? What do you? How do you? Why do you rate Alan uh, Judd's books so highly? Well, I think Alan's books have a real. Um, they haven't. They 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 somehow capture uh, an essence of what modern espionage sort of a, as the Cold War ends is really like. And there's something quite authentic about them. They're cleverly written. Um, and all I'm saying is that if people want to read fiction and get a sense of what it might be like, they're going to get a more accurate picture from reading out. And they're also well-written, entertaining and clever books. Um, and, you know, I think he's just struck a note which nobody else has managed to. I mean, I won't go into the explanation of how he's done it. Mm. But, um, <laughs> uh, no, he, fair enough. They're good. But, and, and, but interest, I mean, I, I, Keith Jeffries' book is, is a courageous book to have written. But essentially, it's, it, it's, it's an institutional history of MI6. It, it describes the place of MI6 in government. And uh, it, it's really almost a sort of departmental history. It's not an operational history. I mean, there are some bits in it which are operational. But I mean, the fact is, uh, Keith Jeffries wasn't really given the access which would have allowed him to write an operational history and in a way to preserve we neither confirm nor deny, which, um, you know, we've already discussed. It was correct that he shouldn't. Uh, but, I mean, when I was chief of history of SIS with Mooted, um, I sort of anticipated the difficulty of producing something that would be consistent with the services disclosure policies. And my preference would have been to have get got a group of distinguished historians like yourself who had taken you know a, a particular event or a particular uh, series of, 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 of things that happened in the service with access to the more interesting operational files and then written a monograph 
about illustrative bits of the service's history. Um, I think that would have been a much more exciting and better read. But because that, that's how the files are, are filed, aren't they? They're filed by case rather than by theme, as it were. I mean, of course, with IT, that begins to change, but because you can you, you can cross-reference your information in so many different ways. But, I mean, the physical files are largely uh, filed a, a, according to source identity and operation, uh, and it makes it very difficult to look at big generic subjects if you're going back into the history of the service, and of course that determines one's attitude. I mean, I think, I think Keith, Keith, you know, within the limitations of, of the access he was given, wrote, wrote a, uh, an interesting book, but it was a bit disappointing. I mean, for example, that um, the lady who was the Foreign Office historian, if you go back in time, was allowed access to the files on the Zinoviev letter. And she wrote a monograph on the Zinoviev letter. Um, I'm trying to remember her name. This is a terrible failure on my part. Um, senior moment. But, uh, anyway, that that's really interesting and very good because it it gives a sort of explanation of these extraordinary political events and the fact that you know the Zinoviev letter was in fact probably uh, you know <laughs> an operation. Yes, I think um, I think you're you're right and. Uh... And it's uh, gosh, it, she, her name's on the tip of my tongue as well. Let's move. Let's move on. And let's let me start a new uh, a new idea. You mentioned the future of the West. Sorry, um, you mentioned the failure of the West in one of your earlier answers. Uh, let's talk about some of the successes of the West because there have been a lot, haven't there? One thinks of Pankovsky. One thinks of the Mitrokin archive. Obviously, Oleg uh, Gordievsky. Uh, you know, these really do um, prove that the um, that the Harold Shergold more optimistic view of of uh, SIS was the correct one, rather than the uh, counterintelligence nihilists, don't they? I think that's absolutely the case, and, and I mean, you know, we can only talk about the cases that are in the public domain, and strongly so. I mean, Penkovsky, obviously, being one of the most famous, and, and, and the Americans allowed. Um, a very informative book to be written about him. It's titled The Spy Who Saved Him. Um, the Spy Who Saved the World, I think, and it's by Daniel Schechter. Um, and, and it's, it's a very thorough, um, description of the case. And, um, I think it was, it was written because, because the Russians were released an account from their archives. And the Americans really wanted their account to print. Well, it's the Anglo. It describes the Anglo-British case. It, 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 it's very complete. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, the Gordievsky case is now thoroughly in the public domain, um, and uh, the, the, there's a book written about that, which is not an official book, sanctioned by the service, but there's an awful lot of detail in it. Is that Ben McIntyre's the one? The one by Ben, yeah. Which is based on interviews. And, um, I, I mean, it, it, it pretty much accounts to almost a formal release of, of, the, of, of the case because it's so detailed and very good and a, and a terrific read. Um, then, of course, the most extraordinary, perhaps, of all, but, the, but it's very scholarly, is Christopher Andrews' books on the Matrokin Archive. Um, just to remind people, Matrokin was a um, KGB archivist um, who appeared in the West briefly in the Baltic states, um, claiming that uh, he had buried under his dash of transcribed documents of all the material on many, many sensitive cases that he had seen as the archivist, indicating that he wanted to come to the West. Uh, I mean, I won't go into the detail. I mean, he tried to attract the attentions of the Americans and failed, um, succeeded with, with the British. Um, and eventually his family, well, him, his wife and son, who was a handicapped in a wheelchair, were exfiltrated to the West and including this trunk or several trunks of documents which had been hidden under his dasher in, in Moscow, uh, and which he had accumulated over many years. And, uh, I mean, it, it, the, the Matrokin archive is probably the most revelatory 
archive that exists to this day of Cold War espionage and, and a whole range of uh, cases um, are described. I mean, successful KGB cases are, are described in detail. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's really, a, it was an amazing intelligence crew and it was a hugely successful operation. Um, I mean, the decision was made uh, to put all the material in the public domain. It took a long time for it to be transcribed because uh, Mitrakin's notes are a bit like Pepys's diaries. Um, they're in, written in a, in a type of code, but uh, they had a group of people who worked on them for several years. And um, there were a huge number of global CI investigations that were created from the material. So it wasn't. A, and then there's another case, which I think uh, is not publicly much talked about, but it's in the public domain, which extraordinarily was a French case. Um, I'd say extraordinary because it was run by the French Security Service, not the French Intelligence Service. Uh, and the code name for that case is Farewell. It's the subject of a film uh, in France, a very good movie. Um, and it's also the subject of, of a very revelatory book. And Farewell was, was in the, um, S&T, the science and technology part of the KGB. It went back to a central job in Moscow. And in that job gave the West, massive amounts of uh, documentation which had never really been seen before. And probably in terms of value in the Cold War and understanding armament systems and where the Russians had got to in the development of various armaments, the Farewell case probably is almost more important than the Penkovsky case. Uh, would you just like to remind listeners about Penkovsky? Uh, Penkovsky was a general in the uh, Russian general staff. Um, and recently, uh, is the subject of a film, um, uh, which surrounds the character of a man called Greville Wynn. Um, I mean, Pankowski approached Greville Wynn, who was a contact, a, a, an official contact of his, and indicated he wanted to spy for the West. Um, Greville Wynn became the sort of courier for the case. And over time, I mean, Pankowski gave the, the West uh, and the case was run jointly by British and American services, a massive amount of material, which was crucial to understanding um, Soviet uh, rocket um, nuclear capabilities. And the reason that um, uh, Kennedy was able to take a stand on Cuba uh, over the whole issue of the Cuba crisis in the early 1960s was because of um, Penkovsky's uh, intelligence, which was which was so detailed and so extensive. Um, I mean, uh, eventually, Penkovsky, um, who was run in Moscow and actually met by the, uh, famously met, and this is all recorded in the book, by the wife of one of the British station officers under deep cover in Moscow, but, but it was the wife that met him with, you know, with the baby and he dropped his his mic, his microfilm photographs into the pram. Anyway, it's, it's all in the book, and, and it's an extraordinary story. I mean, eventually, Pankowski was bought and shot um, uh, because I think the leak was so extensive. The Russians realised they had a serious problem. Um, much, much later, um, much later in the nineteen nineties, uh, after the end of the Cold War, uh, Pankowski's. Uh, the remains of his family, as it were, came out to the West and resettled. You mentioned it was a joint uh, British-American service, uh, sorry, operation. Um, you, you spent some time in, in Washington, didn't you? As, yeah. Uh, was it head of station of SIS in Washington? Uh, are the um, assumptions that we all make about the close yeah. working relationship between the CIA and uh, MI6 um, accurate? Well, that's a very specific question, and I must be careful how I ask it. Um, it's true of all of my questions, uh, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> the special relationship is, is, is well, it was then, and I think still is in very good shape. What I mean by that is that um, at the core of what's called Five Eyes, which is the Anglophone uh, or the Anglosphere Intelligence Alliance, which is the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. 
I mean, at the core of that, the, the sort of keystone of the architecture is the relationship between the UK and the US. And, 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 and the primary example of that is what's called the UCUSA, the UCUSA Agreement, which was signed in 1947, which is a treaty which specifically um, relates to the cooperation between NSA, that's the Intercept Service um, of American Intelligence and RA and GCHQ. Um, that's not replicated in other areas, but it's representative of the ability of the two services to work together closely. But I mean, I would say that, you know, the UK is a sovereign nation with its independent service. The Americans is a sovereign nation. Don't assume that, you know, in all areas, this integration exists in the way that is expressed by, let's say, knowledge of what happened in the Penkovsky case. So this is not a sort of clear-cut and straightforward topic. It's quite nuanced. Do you think that the Official Secrets Act is fit for purpose still in this uh, age? It was passed, of course, in 1911, but in this age of the internet and so on, uh, does it still um, hold good, in your view? No, it certainly needs updating. And my understanding is that this is under discussion current government. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't account for... Uh, let's say, disclosure. Um, and, and it's very easy, as you know, to put stuff on the internet and have it read instantly by millions of people. Um, it, so it, it, it needs, as it were, adapting uh, for the technology, just like intercept legislation, um, which is now an act, of, uh, which is the regulate, Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act has been massively um, updated and changed to take account of modern communications. The Official Secrets Act should also have been adapted, and, and I think it will be. It's it's complicated politically, and of course it's politically a bit of a hot potato, and it's not the thing that political parties grasp with enthusiasm, because it's so difficult to do. But it will be updated, and it will take account, I think, of the problems of disclosure as opposed to the problems of working, you know, be, being a traitor, a spy and working for the Russians. Uh, and uh, I think what will, what, what would be the main characteristic of the changes, the penalties for disclosure will be much higher than they are hitherto at the moment. I think under the current laws, you know, the, 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 the highest penalty for disclosure is two years. That's ridiculous. It should be far, far. It's ridiculous. I mean, I may be, I may be slightly wrong on that, but it certainly was. Because we had, I mean, there are some one or two famous modern cases of disclosure. The the Tomlinson case, if you can recall that. I remember. I was at, I was at Cambridge with Tomlinson. He was in my in my college the year above me. In fact, so I knew him. Well, I mean, oh. Tomlinson um, was, as you know, guilty of disclosure. Was prosecuted and was locked up. For two years, but he should have gone to prison for much, much longer. Than that. I thought he skipped to France and and uh, got away with that. When he was on bail, he did skip to France. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But he had been released on bail, but he was still on. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I think it was a shortened sentence, and he did a runner to France. Yeah. Uh, talking about the future, uh, you have um, stated that you didn't think that Brexit. Uh, was uh, threatened by, or at least Britain post-Brexit would be um, threatened in an intelligence sense uh, that the um, that the security um, in the secret intelligence uh, service was going to be able to uh, to deal with Brexit in its own way, and that it certainly wasn't a reason to vote uh, remain. Um, do you think that uh, subsequent Events have proved you right um, over this. Triply right. <laughs> Ukraine. I mean, I think what people have to understand is that uh, the UK had always been opposed to the Commission accumulating any powers that related to national security, and if you go back to the idea of the European Constitution, which of course was not adopted. There were references in the original document to 
certain competences on the part of the Commission for National Security Issues. I mean, at the time, the UK made sure that all of these were extracted from the Constitution document, the one that was not agreed at Lisbon. Um, but I mean, it's indicative of the attitude that we always had. And, you know, we were, we were very unenthusiastic at Brussels in anything that touched on defense policy, frankly, and national security policy. And we were largely successful in holding the line. And I think what you have to understand then and now is that the UK is Europe's leading intelligence and security uh, power. And, of course, we also are one of Europe's leading defense powers. And I think you just have to see what's happened in Ukraine and the way that we have been able, as it were, to lead on the support for the Ukrainians. Um, and I, I mean, I'm sure that covers not just defense and, and arming them. It, 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 it relates also to help with intelligence. Uh, and I'm sure that we've played I mean, I haven't any details, I'm just speculating, we would have played an extremely important role. And I think, uh, you know, the fact that we're not constrained by European community membership, by common uh, foreign and defence policy, which the EU tries to promote, has made a huge difference because we have much more flexibility. And, um, you know, look at the, the, the response that we've had uh, amongst those, you know, who are keen to support Ukraine, it's put us in the, in, in a leading and, and powerful position. I mean, I think, I, I, when, when the Brexit debate was sort of hot, you know, I was very critical of, of Cameron and Osborne on this issue because I don't think they really understood it. Uh, and they certainly didn't have any first-hand experience. And, you know, if they'd come and asked me and sat down with me, I could have explained to them why they'd got this wrong. Uh, and I think I can say absolutely clearly and authoritatively now that on this issue, there's no question that I was right. And do you think that um, the the ferocity of the Russian attack and the illegality of it, obviously, um, might mean that somewhere in Moscow, as we speak, there might be somebody who is in the uh, defence or intelligence services of Russia that might be uh, uh, helping us? Well, let's put it like this. I would imagine amongst the Russian elite, Putin's intervention uh, in Ukraine is highly controversial, despite the fact that we're not aware of the opposition and the criticism, there will be some very, very disillusioned Russians. For example, we know that one of the senior diplomats in Geneva recently defected. Uh, because he was totally critical of uh, Putin's uh, policy over Ukraine and the way that the Russians had acted. There will be, for sure, Russians who will be offering their services to the Americans or to other Western nations uh, because they so fundamentally disagree with Russian policy. I think, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, there, there were always ideological agents during the Cold War. And then we, if you look at Benkovsky, Gordievsky, the ones that you know about, okay, they had personal motivations, but they were also ideologically driven. Uh, and there will certainly be Russians now who have that attitude. And I hope that Western intelligence is making hay whilst the sun shines. That's perhaps not a very good sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two more questions, which I always ask every uh, one of my guests. The um, and, but um, before I do, I think the name of the lady who wrote that excellent uh, piece on the Zinoviev letter was Jill Bennett. Jill Bennett. That's and I, I really feel upset that I couldn't remember Jill's name. I, no, no, I no, not at all. No, she's she's a very fine historian. What, uh, what book are you reading at the moment? I'm reading Peter Stoddart's The Last Assassin, which is described as a hunt for the killers of Julius Caesar. Now, I love Peter Stoddart's rather unusual books. I mean, he, he writes brilliantly, I think. Uh, and I like his style, his rather elliptical style. And, and he write, writes very poetically. But this is a, it's an extraordinary book. 
um, because I, it, it, it's both a political thriller, but it's much more profound than that because it's a sort of clash between. Uh, I mean, I'm not original in it, but it is a clash. It describes a clash between idealism and tyranny. And, and I had no um, concept. I mean, I'm not a classical historian, but, you know, the chaos that followed Caesar's assassination and the sort of description of the brittleness of power structures where there's no organized succession and the chaos that followed. And, of course, I think you, know, you read a book like this and immediately Putin's position in Russia springs to mind and you wonder what 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 on earth is going on around him because for sure there is massive tension around the Kremlin at the moment. Okay, we've never historically there's never been a coup in Russia. There have been revolutions, there haven't been coups. Um but Oh, hang on. I suppose the um, overthrow of Alexander the uh, First, sorry, the overthrow that brought Alexander the uh, First, where his, where he sort of was involved in a palace coup, yeah, that I his own father that, could have been. I called. always think that the, the, the sort of complex history of the removal of czars and their replacements don't really count as coups. All right. Okay, I'll give you that. You're the you're the expert on coups, not me. Um, I agree with you about Peter's book. It's uh, it's fantastic. It takes you from the Ides of March up to the point where Octavian, later Augustus, kills every um, last one of the assassins of his uh, of his uh, great uncle. So it really is a it's a as you say it's a thriller, but a proper history book as well. I really enjoyed that book. It's a brilliant uh, history book. I mean, the the research. And I think the juxtaposition of, you know, the civilization of the Roman Empire and its sheer brutality. Mm. I mean, I find that, and, and actually, you know, once again, that makes me think of Russia. You know, I'm a great admirer of Russian. I love Russian music. You know, I love Russian literature. I'm not a Russian specialist. But, you know, there are aspects of life in Russia, particularly if you've been there and seen it, which are absolutely amazing. But then this... The stunning brutality that Russia can exercise even now in, in, in current times. And you find that juxtaposition in this book as well. And my last question is about your uh, historical counterfactual, your what if. What's, what's the one that uh, intrigues well, you? I've just was honoured to unveil a monument at a place called Farm Hall which is this extraordinary restored Georgian house outside God Manchester, which is a village near Huntingdon. And this was one of the houses requisitioned in World War II by SOE, and it was used as a training place for agents, some quite famous ones who were parachuted into occupied Europe uh, and played an important role in the intelligence war. But more appropriately for this question, it was also the house in which the 10 captured uh, German nuclear scientists were um, incarcerated, I mean, in some luxury, uh, for about seven months at the end of World War II. And the whole house was bugged. And the idea was for the Allies to try to understand how close the Germans had got to creating um, an atom bomb. Um, and it was the sort of conversation and the juxtaposition of these scientists, you know, as they lived together. And it, it's an extraordinary story. And of course, is the subject of a famous play by Michael Frayn, which was very good called Copenhagen, or, or an earlier um, aspect of this, this issue, this problem. So I suppose my, my, my counterfactual is, suppose Hitler had um, followed the advice of some of these scientists and created an atom bomb rather than putting all his effort scientifically into the development of the V2 rocket. Um, had he, let's say in 1944, and things were going badly, had, had been able to drop an atom bomb in London, uh, on London, which, you know, it, it, it's not quite as fanciful as it sounds, given what we know historically. Um, this would have probably ended World War II rather summarily.
uh, in yes. Europe. Yes, uh, Operation Epsilon, it was called, wasn't it? Epsilon, at, uh, at Farmhouse, yeah. Farm uh, Hall. And, and I thought it was fascinating. Uh, I remember studying this some time ago, but when the German scientists, and you had uh, Walter Heisenberg and, uh, and, and lots of top ones there, when they were told about Hiroshima, they were all um, totally surprised and and uh, and sort of shocked by it. But that's a fascinating what if. What if instead of them being surprised and shocked, they had actually uh, cracked the the method of uh, of enriching uranium to the point that they would be able to uh, take out London. Because that, Hahn, Hahn, who was amongst them, yes, Otto who, Hahn was there. Otto Hahn was there, and, and whilst he was there, he was awarded the Nobel Prize because of his discovery of nuclear fusion in 1939 uh, and that's the sort of basis of the um, British Atomic Energy Programme. So I mean in some respects some of them got very close um, yeah. but they weren't sure or they claimed they weren't sure. I mean I don't think anyone's quite sure. I mean Heisenberg sort of absolves himself historically in the transcripts. Well they didn't um, They didn't uh, know they were being Bug. They thought it was impossible to to be bugged, didn't they? Yeah, they actually they, talk about whether or not they, they are being about, bugged, and then they uh, agree that it would be impossible to do. Well, thank you. Well, on that uh, on that apocalyptic note of uh, London being destroyed in the in the Blitz um, completely, uh, Sir Richard Dearlove, uh, thank you very much indeed for being uh, my guest on Secrets of Statecraft. Andrew, great fun, and I really enjoyed the discussion. <laughs> I hope lots of people listen to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Join me on the next Secrets of Statecraft, when our guest will be Ian Hersey Ali, one of the world's strongest voices on women's rights in the Islamic world. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.